Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Velarkis and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world and of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health, and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack-sized episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying-to-conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food. So this episode is brought to you by our Nourishing Gut Health for Endometriosis Masterclass, which I will be delivering to you live on Thursday, March 23rd at 7 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time or to Sydney, Melbourne time. So come and join me to learn the relationship between endometriosis and gut health, including the gut microbiome, from the latest research and understand how to tackle common and bothersome gut concerns with endo, including bloating, constipation, diarrhea, and nausea with super practical tips that you can take away and implement. We have tickets on sale now. The link is in our show notes and includes the ticket to the live event and the recording if you can't make it or you want to re-watch, plus bonus downloadable workbook summarizing key points from the masterclass. Tickets are just $75 Australian dollars and $10 will be donated to the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia who raise awareness for pelvic pain conditions like endometriosis amongst adolescents to help reduce the time to diagnosis because who didn't want to know about endometriosis when they're in high school and have their symptoms normalized? I mean, denormalized, I should say. We all needed that when we were teenagers, am I right? So today's episode is part of our endometriosis mini series for Endo Awareness Month for March, and we are joined by our very own senior team dietitian and nutritionist from the dietologist, Kaylee Slater, APD. So it's been a while. So welcome back, Kay. Thanks, Steph. I'm very excited to be back on the podcast for season four. I can't believe we are here. I know we're gonna we're going to hit a hundred episodes this season, which is just wild. So very exciting. But we have a lots of new listeners since you were last on the pod. So for those who perhaps haven't listened to some of your back catalogue of features on the podcast, perhaps you can do a quick reintroduction to who you are, what you do here at the Dietologist, and any of your special interests. Yep. Yeah, so I am Kay or Kaylee. Usually go by Kay. I am one of the senior dietitians here at The Dietologist and have been with the team for just over two years now. Wow, where has the time gone? I have been on the podcast a little bit over the last four seasons and yeah, I love bringing to you some of my research and research knowledge. Some of my interests are specifically endo and gut health and endo pain. Some of my other interests are hypothalamic amenorrhea and trying to recover from that and recover your period, postpartum health and pregnancy health, so taking you through your pregnancy journey, and yeah, and fertility as well. So those are some of my special interests. Is there anything else to know about me, Steph? 
What do you do when you're not here, Kaylee? <laughs> That's probably a good one to <laughs> to talk about. So I am doing my PhD nearly finished again. How? Where is the time gone? So should be finishing by the end of this year. And my PhD is focusing on healthcare for women that have had hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So something similar um, or like preeclampsia, for example, and really focusing on heart disease prevention from a lifestyle perspective. So things like diet and physical activity. So yeah, when I'm not at the dietologist, I am researching and writing and what else do I do? Go to conferences and all that fun or people that don't like research would say not fun stuff. Incredible. We'll be calling you Dr. Kaylee by the next season for sure. How good. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever get used to that. (laughs) (laughs) I still get a kick out of when people accidentally call me a doctor. I'm like, this is undeserved. I have done nothing. (laughs) But I appreciate you think I am so intelligent. Of course, I did not like I correct people. Don't don't get me wrong, but yes, it does happen on pathology reports a fair bit. <laughs> oh dear! So, season four, you're new to season four, so we kick off each episode with a question from our community. So, if anyone's tuning in and you want to submit a question to the podcast, you can submit anonymously. All you have to do is fill in a quick. 30-second question form. It's always linked in the show notes. We love receiving your questions and answering them in a more long-form format than what we can do on like an IG story or something like that. So the question from our community member this week is, how do your nutrition needs change as your endo journey does? I couldn't manage any lactose with my endo before becoming pregnant and now I can manage little bits of certain forms of lactose in my first pregnancy. Does lactose intolerance change throughout your life with endo? So I thought I might throw this one to you, Kay. Yep. So I guess we've got two questions in here kind of focusing on how does your nutrition needs change as your endo journey changes and then can lactose intolerance also change throughout your life with endo? So your nutrition needs, I guess, would change as we work through um, some of your triggers. If we notice that food is a trigger for some of your symptoms. So for example, if you're getting a lot of bloating or endo belly and food is a trigger, obviously your nutrition needs can change depending on how we, you know, how we deal with that. So yeah, it could definitely change and it's really individual as well. So it's hard to say, oh, you know, at first we'll start with XYZ and then as you move through, we'll do something else. But yeah, as I guess your endo journey continues and you go from diagnosis, possible surgery to just being able to manage your symptoms and um, live with your symptoms, then the way that we eat might change slightly. But as well, um, and especially Steph and I are both very uh, big advocates for this, is any nutrition changes that you make really need to be sustainable long term. You know, you need to be able to keep them up and be able to live freely with your endo and also with eating with your endo. In terms of lactose intolerance, this is an interesting one. So with lactose intolerance, it doesn't mean that you have an allergy to lactose. So you can have some lactose and everyone with lactose intolerance has 
different levels of tolerance. So for example, if I had lactose intolerance, I might be able to tolerate half a glass of milk. If Steph had lactose intolerance, she might be able to tolerate just a quarter of a glass of milk. So it really does depend on the person. And how that changes is if we don't have any lactose for a certain amount of time, basically our body becomes even more and more sensitive. Whereas if we, even if we have lactose intolerance and we keep having little bits that we can tolerate over time, sometimes your body can become less sensitive. And yeah, over time, you might actually be able to tolerate a little bit more than you had before. And this isn't even endospecific. This is just in terms of lactose intolerance. And then when pregnancy comes into it, you know, there's a lot of changes that are happening, a lot of hormones that are changing during your pregnancy. And what we find with food sensitivities, so things like lactose intolerance, is that sometimes after pregnancy or during pregnancy, you might actually be able to tolerate foods that you previously weren't before you fell pregnant. And that's with a lot, a lot of different foods that you might be sensitive to. So for example, if someone was a bit sensitive to gluten, over time during their pregnancy, sometimes they're actually able to tolerate a little bit more than they were before. So yeah, I hope that kind of answers your question. Steph, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I guess the other component of what you mentioned with nutrition needs changing as your endo journey does. Yeah, it's definitely relevant to endo, but it's also just relevant to life stage. Like how you eat when you're 20 is not going to be how you eat when, you, when you're when you 80 exactly. Like maybe the principles are the same. But specifically for females who do become pregnant, like pregnancy, preconception and postpartum have very unique nutrition needs and we do layer that with endometriosis as well. And it's going to be based on your symptoms and, and your your needs. So you might be in more pain at some points and you might need different types of strategies and other times and so on. I mean, it's very nuanced and it's probably a humongous question. But, yes, exactly right. The lactose stuff, everybody's got different levels of sensitivity and intolerances are very well known to change over your life. So hopefully that answers your question, anonymous question asker and we have failed to introduce the topic of today's episode haha <laughs> so today's episode is all about you've read the title anyway so it's all about the low fodmap diet for endometriosis so kaylee does a lot of low fodmap diet in our practice with endo clients as do i probably you do more than I do now. And so I thought I would get Kate on to talk a bit about it because it's a extremely common question and a very common management strategy that is often talked about for endometriosis. But I thought we would get some deeper perspective. So Kay, I'm going to throw it to you. First of all, what is a low FODMAP diet and what's its use in people with endometriosis? Yep. Okay, let's get started. So I actually had a client yesterday um, come to me and she was like, oh, I've been told to do the low FODMAP diet. I downloaded the app from um, Monash University and I got started. And I was like, oh, who, firstly, who told you to do this? And, you know, what do you know about it? And she's like, I don't know. I'm just kind of cutting out things willy-nilly and seeing how we go. Um, and I'll explain a lot about the low FODMAP diet here, but it's really important that if we're going to do any types of diets especially one like this which is really a diagnostic tool 
that we're not just doing it by ourselves and we're actually getting the proper support that we need because, yeah, my client was extremely confused. She was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And by doing stuff like that, we can be doing these types of diets for months and months and months because we don't really know what we're doing and we're not doing them properly. So if you haven't heard of the low FODMAP diet before, it's kind of what I just described. It's a diagnostic tool. It's not another type of diet, which is, I guess, quote unquote, there to improve our gut health. Instead, it's actually one of the therapeutic dietary protocols for irritable bowel syndrome, which is commonly known as IBS. And it was developed by Monash University in Melbourne. In simple terms, it's a diet which is used to treat and manage IBS and is commonly followed for only a short period of time. And since it was developed, there have been more and more research into the role of the low FODMAP diet beyond just medically diagnosed IBS and into other chronic conditions and inflammatory bowel disease, for example, and also endoendometriosis. So we often use the low FODMAP diet as a dietary intervention that can help us manage our endometriosis and IBS symptoms, given the relationship between endo and IBS and the gut microbiome, which I think if you listened to last week's episode, you would have learned about endo and um, the gut microbiome. And yeah, we get a lot of questions about this. So it's definitely a topic that um, we thought we would explore. So firstly, I'll start with just discussing IBS, which is ultimately what the low FODMAP diet was designed to help. IBS, if you are not aware of it, is basically characterized by a range of different symptoms. Some of them are gas, bloating, abdominal pain or cramping, which can be relieved by passing wind or opening your bowels, constipation, diarrhea, nausea, or even mucus in the stools. For some people, they might have all of these symptoms at any given time. For some people, they might only experience a couple or one of these symptoms. So yeah, everyone is, again, very different. It just depends on your symptoms. However, these are all symptoms of IBS. Typically, IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that your doctors will often have to rule out any other causes of the the symptoms that I just mentioned before you can be diagnosed with IBS. And if you have been diagnosed with IBS, chances are you've been back and forth to the doctor. You may have had one or more endoscopy or colonoscopy, and basically they can find nothing else wrong with you. So they're like, ah, it's probably IBS. Um, And IBS is generally broken down into three subtypes. So we have IBS-C, which is constipation dominant, where your bowel motions tend to, I guess, lead to the side of constipation, slower moving, harder to pass. Or we could have IBS-D, which is diarrhea dominant, and then your bowels tend to be more on the diarrhea side. So going to the bathroom, you know, multiple times a day, they might be quite loose stools or, um, yeah, I guess very easy, too easy to pass. Or we also have IBS-A, which is either alternating or mixed. So you have diarrhea and constipation, which a lot of people are like, how does that happen? It happens and it's not fun. So the link between IBS and endo, and we see a lot of women that come to us with endo and IBS, or they're like, I'm coming for my IBS symptoms, and we're like, "Mm, possibly endo. So IBS affects about 15% of the population, 
And particularly women and then endo affects about 10% of um, women of reproductive age. IBS and endo share many clinical features such as differences in bowel movements, abdominal discomfort, pain, and cramping. And they also have a significant overlap due to the chronic inflammation aspect of it, which leads to chronic pelvic pain. And in some cases, endo actually masquerades as IBS in some patients. So that means that either you or your healthcare team might actually think that you have IBS, but in actual fact, you might also have endometriosis. Again, it's really common and we see it with our clients a lot is that you know, the time to diagnosis of endo is long. It can be seven plus years. And often they'll be diagnosed with IBS first and then down the line continue doing some, I guess, investigations and realize, oh, I also have endometriosis. And interestingly, there was a recent US-based study and they showed that endometriosis also increases the risk of IBS by threefold. And other studies have also shown that um, the co-occurrence of IBS and endometriosis are within the realm of 36 to 52%. That's a lot. Another idea as to why people might have endometriosis and IBS is visceral hypersensitivity. And basically what that means is that the area around the abdomen is especially sensitive to um, stimuli which are interpreted as pain by the brain. So you're more susceptible essentially to bloating and endobelly then. And this also contributes to experiencing a higher intensity of pain. And yeah, also many women with endo experience visceral hypersensitivity. So it's also really emphasized in the research that a multidisciplinary approach is required. So not just from um, a gastroenterologist when it comes to IBS and not just from a gynecologist when it comes to endo, but really having the whole team. So a gynecologist, a gastroenterologist, your dietitian, your GP, and often also involving a psychologist as well to help manage the stress, I guess, the stress component of um, the IBS symptoms, you know, especially it can be really stressful and anxiety inducing if you're getting a lot of IBS symptoms and say you want to go for a nice long walk and you don't know where the, ne- the nearest bathroom is or you're going, I don't know, on a date and you don't want to get an IBS flare-up. So there's definitely a lot of anxiety that can come into this. So back to the low FODMAP diet. So I already mentioned the low FODMAP diet is an evidence-based dietary intervention to help people with um, medically diagnosed IBS. And what it's designed to do is essentially reduce the load of carbohydrates that you are malabsorbing. So therefore, it will then reduce the water that's being dragged into your large intestine and subsequently cause painful bloating or other symptoms of IBS like diarrhea. And people with IBS can actually tolerate a lower volume of gas in your gut than people without IBS. And this is the visceral hypersensitivity that I just mentioned as well. So the idea really is to reduce the load on your gut and that should hopefully make you experience less of these painful symptoms of IBS. One very exciting study which was published in 2017 also showed that 72% of women in New Zealand with both IBS and endometriosis who did the low FODMAP diet for four weeks showed more than 50% improvement in their bowel symptoms. So that's a really exciting bit of research and there's a lot more research going on in terms of 
the low FODMAP diet and endometriosis at the moment. What the low FODMAP diet really is, is FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And what these are, are basically a group of carbohydrates, as well as sugar alcohols, which are found in various foods and food groups, which may include fruits, veggies, grains and cereals, dairy foods, legumes, nuts and seeds, and um, not all of them. So yeah, you're not like, oh, you have to cut all of these things out. No, no, no. Um, but basically, like I said earlier, I was designed by Monash University to help people really identify which of these FODMAP foods are irritating their IBS symptoms so that they can see how much of these foods they can tolerate and then plan their diet accordingly. So the low FODMAP diet has three main phases. Phase one is known as substitution or essentially following the low FODMAP diet. And usually this occurs over two to six weeks where any foods that are high in these FODMAP groups are substituted with those that are lower in, um, I guess, in FODMAP content. And the aim of this is really to reduce all of your symptoms to what we know is your baseline. So hopefully you'll reduce gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation to what is manageable for you and what is significantly better for you. That might not mean that all of these symptoms are gone. That might just mean that, okay, I can actually, I can tolerate this. Instead of getting diarrhea five times a day, I'm getting more form stools three times a day, you know, whatever your baseline is. But it's also important to note that if you don't experience any improvements in the symptoms after six weeks of following the low FODMAP diet, basically you and your team will possibly decide that, okay, we're not going to continue with this, we're going to return to your normal diet and then seek some other options to manage those symptoms. So in that case, we can assume that um, the low FODMAP diet is not helping manage your symptoms. However, if it is, after six weeks, we're feeling much better, we're feeling good, we would then move to phase two, which is challenging phase. And this can take six to eight weeks or even longer, depending on um, your responses and also if you're strict with it. So basically what this phase involves is systematically reintroducing foods that represent different FODMAPs. So for example, using dairy to challenge the FODMAP lactose. And this phase will then help you determine which FODMAPs are causing symptoms for you and also how much you can tolerate or how much of these foods you can eat without triggering your symptoms. So we're trying to find that your, well, really, we're trying to find your threshold level. And it's, ex it's important to experience at least three symptom-free days before actually proceeding with a challenge if you do react. So for example, say you challenge your lactose group and you react, we need to make sure that we go back to that baseline so basically how you are feeling when you are following the low FODMAP diet before you start to challenge the next group, which may be fructose, for example. And then once we've done all our challenges, we've identified which of the FODMAP groups are causing our symptoms and how much of them we can tolerate, we would then go to the personalization phase, so phase three. And this is basically where you sit down with your dietitian and you develop a plan moving forward that you can maintain in a basically a healthy and nutritionally adequate way, while still avoiding any of these trigger foods that we know are causing your IBS symptoms. So this phase is probably one of the most important phases because we can't be following a low FODMAP diet 
for a long time because it's not nutritionally adequate. So we need to make sure that we do this personalization phase so that you can live basically a normal life and be able to go out with your friends and eat what you want by still knowing, okay, I'm going to avoid XYZ food just because I'm out with my friends and I don't want to get IBS symptoms. And again, it's not that you would avoid these foods forever. It's so that we can know really what's irritating your digestive system. Because a lot of the time when we are sensitive to certain FODMAPs, it can be a bunch of random foods and we're like, I don't know what is causing my symptoms. I'm feeling unwell all the time and I have no idea. So this is really to just figure out what is irritating us so that we can know when and where to avoid these particular things. Um, Yeah, so with all that in mind as well, I just want to drive home a really important point that the low FODMAP diet, the entire phase of the low FODMAP diet should be supervised by a dietitian who can help you work through how to fit this in your current diet and give you meal ideas, some snack ideas and resources to help you. Because like I said, this diet is not nutritionally adequate and it can be very limiting. And it's also really easy to fall into patterns where you are not nourishing your body enough. And that in itself can then result in a plethora of other symptoms. So fatigue, nutrient deficiencies, um, which again might make symptoms that you experience in even worse. So it should also be attempted um, after some sort of diagnosis of IBS or at the discretion of your medical team. So it's not designed to be like, ah, you know, I'm not really feeling unwell, but why not? Let's just give this a go. That's not what this diet is designed for. And it's like I said, it's not designed to be nutritionally adequate or to be followed for a long period of time. So yeah, just want to drive that home that this should only be done under supervision of professionals who are trained in the area and should not be followed for a long time. And also, if this is something that you think would really help you, then it's important to try seek out some support um, as soon as you possibly can. Steph, anything to add on that long-winded explanation of the low FODMAP diet? Oh, yeah, it's such a huge topic, isn't it? And like even that we talked about, you did such a great job like getting to the crux of, of the low fodmap diet and I was like, and this and this, and there's so many elements to it. But I think some things that people, the common traps that people fall into to summarise is number one, um, commencing it willy-nilly and not having a strong symptom-focused goal. Like you have to have like, this is my symptoms. You have to have a really strong sense of your symptoms and your symptom profile. What exactly are your symptoms? How intense are they? How frequent are they? Because they're all the metrics that we're going to use to define whether the low FODMAP diet in that initial substitution phase is working for you well or not. So I think that's critical. Two, I think it's one of those dietary protocols that have a lot of rules or perceived rules and what can occur then as a result is we can integrate those types of rules into a a food morality thing of like high FODMAP foods are quote-unquote bad and low FODMAP foods are good but that's not actually the case because as Kay mentioned like FODMAPs is just about fermentable carbohydrates they're going to be distributed across pretty much all food groups and it will include nutritious foods. And so 
I think if you've got a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder, it's extremely slippery slope. And in most cases, we avoid doing the low FODMAP diet in, in those particular client scenarios. And the other thing that I also see is people um, having to layer different types of dietary patterns on top of the low FODMAP diet. So being vegan or vegetarian, um, also having celiac disease and being gluten-free or perhaps you're dairy-free already or whatever the situation is. If you've got a layering, oh my goodness, like a dietitian is your best friend because we can then go through and exclude what's going to affect both of those dietary patterns as well. And it's temporary, like like we've said a few times, but Kay and I have both seen countless number of people come through and say, I've been doing the low FODMAP diet for four years. That ain't right. <laughs> it's not it's not to be on for four years um you know eating to your personalized thresholds and tolerance levels for four years is a very different story to eating the initial low FODMAP diet it is not a lifelong dietary protocol and it also isn't going to be effective for everyone either and that's okay it's nothing that you necessarily did wrong but I I always say and I'm sure Kay you say this a lot too like do it once and do it well don't faff about trying to do it with that one page A4 printout that your well-meaning GP gave to you to try to save you a few dollars on the dietitian appointment or then trying to navigate it with the app and then you're kind of faffing about for three to four weeks and then you realise it's really hard and your symptoms aren't improving and then you go to a dietitian because all that is going to prolong how long you are depriving your gut of prebiotic fibre for as well. FODMAPs are prebiotic fiber. So yeah, just seek help from the get-go if you're contemplating starting it or you've been advised to start it because you're prolonging your <laughs> the suffering part of it. <laughs> like it's not fun. Like I've done the low FODMAP diet my, myself and like it's definitely doable if you've got the right support structures and and it's quite manageable. However, I think if I was having to feel around in the dark for the first three weeks, I probably would have had an absolute meltdown if I then got to the appointment and then got told I have to do it for another four weeks. Like I would have maybe cried. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely, definitely it's not something to DIY um, for sure. But thank you, Kay. Thanks for the, the the crash course on the low FODMAP diet for endometriosis. Much appreciate your valuable knowledge and insights as per usual. And don't forget, everyone, that this episode is brought to you by our Nourishing Gut Health for Endometriosis Masterclass, which is going to be on Thursday, March 23rd, 7 p.m. Sydney, Melbourne time, Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. You can join from anywhere in the world. Uh, there will be access to a recording. And inside, I'm going to be diving into more about the relationship between endometriosis and gut health, including the gut microbiome, based on the latest research I'm going to go through and give you some insight into knowing when your gut concerns are problematic and how to tackle them, including bloating, constipation, diarrhea, and nausea. It's going to be very practical and there'll be a downloadable for you to keep as well. Tickets are on sale now. The link is in our show notes and includes a ticket to the live event and the recording and, of course, the downloadable workbook that I mentioned. Tickets are just $75 Australian dollars and $10 will be donated to the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia in honour of Endometriosis Awareness Month. So 
Thank you again for tuning into this episode. Don't forget to subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I cannot tell you what a difference this makes to our podcast reaching more people. So please, it takes less than three seconds and it is a free way that you can help support us for giving you hopefully this free and valuable information in your ears every week and don't forget to share it with someone who may find this useful too and we will be back next week with another part of our endometriosis mini series so stay tuned for that all right everyone catch you next time bye Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connections to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to First Nation cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people tuning in today. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation.